from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Steve Hemingway. Steve describes himself as growing up to become a marginal man, not completely integrated with his surroundings. His first encounter with Baha'is was when he was 20 years old, returning from England on board a boat in 1957. On the boat were Baha'is returning from the funeral of Shoghi Effendi, the guardian of the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Steve where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Roxbury, Massachusetts, that at one time was a separate town from Boston. During the turn of the century, the very middle income, I suppose, upper, upper class neighborhood, merchants, large homes, long lawns. And then around the 1910s, 13s, Around the time of the Second First World War, immigrants came in, Jewish immigrants from Germany. What happened is that they divided a lot of the property there and created these, they called them German apartment buildings. So therefore, Roxbury was a place where I grew up in the 40s. Huge homes surrounded by apartment buildings. And the majority of individuals that lived in Roxbury, they were Jewish, they were white, and all my friends were were Jewish. I didn't know until maybe 30 to 40 years afterwards, during a alumni association of my high school, that many of my really good friends had been Holocaust survivors. I didn't even know that. I didn't. I was shocked because they never talked about it. And they easily assimilated themselves into the community. In my neighborhood, they were Irish as well, and uh, other part, another part of what you can call it, East Roxbury, closer to Dorchester and South Boston, Irish, and neighboring them were Italian. So therefore, I grew up in a very mixed community with very many religions and religious experiences, which I didn't know how much they really influenced me, but they did. And I went to synagogue once, twice. Of course, I went to the Catholic Church and Protestant churches, and yeah, that, that was my, my youth, maybe around 12 years old. I was 12, 13 years old. Uh, there was a wave of immigrants from the South, African-Americans that moved into the area. There was basically an exodus of white folk during that time period. I, I had maybe an identity crisis of that as to who, who I really was. And I, uh, I, although my mother had 
talked a lot about black culture and history. I wasn't really paying any attention to it at that particular time. I was really educated when the southern kids came up north. Well, you can call me a marginal, you know, sociology, you have a thing called a marginal man, the person who's not really totally integrated into his surroundings. Well, when it came to the black community, that was me. Like on the telephone, you know, very few people know I'm African-American. A lot of my thoughts and, and, and the way I reacted, to, reacted a lot of things were that way. I was a northern person, <laughs> lived in New England. Although I have lived an extremely remarkable life, my background, you know, let my, uh, you know, I was able to have an open mind and experience many things, and that's what basically led me to believe that I could have a, a boundless life, which I have had. Well, for instance, although I grew up in my, my neighborhood, there was a congregational church at that time. They were called congregational churches. It was a black congregational church that we went to. Because a lot of the people that went there, young, young people I did not know because I was, you know, I was in another neighborhood, basically a, uh, the Jewish part of the neighborhood. But I contacted a lot of people there in the congregational church. Then I was an altar boy in the Catholic church, and I sang in, a, in an Episcopal church choir. Again, I had several Jewish friends, uh, although I was, not, I was not a part of their ceremonies. I did do some duties at synagogue on Saturday, and I knew some of, some of the rituals. This also... <laughs> I suppose you can say that this was the reality that my brother was the first African-American male to be accepted into Brandeis University. A lot of that exposure of his friends, the guy kind of familiar with the Hebrew Bible, and we're talking about a time, another time is like in the, the 50s, mm-hmm. before I left the country. People still went to churches every Sunday. You still went to church every Sunday, and, and you and you dressed up. It's another kind of experience that I, I know isn't happening now. Religion was a very important part of one's life in that particular that during that time period. You said you went to several different churches. What motivated you to switch around like that? Money. What do you mean? I get paid the same. Oh, I see. I looked cute as a black guy in a choir. I was like the best friend who happened to be the minister's son of a congregational church. Because he wanted me to hang around his son because I got some good grades. And so, therefore, I went to that church every Sunday. My mother really didn't have a church that she went to. And my father, you know, he left. He was not with us since I was like six years old five or six years old. That was, that was basically my uh, early years. That's what we're talking about. What made me do that, right? I know I had a tremendous religious curiosity because when I was around 10 years old, I had put the bag of the Gita in rhyme as a poetry. 
and I had some kind of sense of the movement of various religious figures through the world over time. I knew that. The other thing, when I was in high school, because we're talking about the time now when people were preparing to do the civil rights movement. Young people were getting themselves together to do stuff. The sit-ins hadn't happened yet, but they were about to. And, and Martin, of course, hadn't happened yet. A lot of the religious conversation when I was growing up in, in my circles, I'm talking about when I was growing up and in my early, early, my earliest teens, were social, it was a social religious movement was happening, and I was a part of it. In fact, I was fortunate enough to have a couple of conversations with Martin Luther King in my mother's house. But you see, he was a fraternity brother of my brother. At that time, the black fraternities, you know, the difference between that is that, uh, you know, like BU and like Brandeis, Harvard, they all would belong to one fraternity, and since it was so few numbers, you know, you, you didn't have a house to go to, and they would meet in different places. At, at the time, we were living at my grandfather's house. He had a kind of big house, so they would have their meetings at the house. And Martin would come, you know, early. A lot of the people would come early because food was prepared. My mother was one of those people, liked to cook. And so I was, you know, invited, and I talked to some of the guys. I knew you know, he was a minister's son, and he was, at the time, considering law, but he was going to be, he was going to theological school, but he was trying to combine the two, these conversations I heard. And a lot of those guys became ministers, and then, that went, then, then they went through to some sort of social, political action group. So religion, to me, at that time, wasn't like a meditative religious experience. If you were going to be a minister, you were going to do something to help your race or change the world. The first experience, the first real religious experience I had was when I was in England, and I became Muslim. That was my life-changing Period. I was down and out. I had trouble in school. And I was in, I was in Ireland, and I and I kind of zoned out, and I ended up in Liverpool, roaming around. I hadn't registered for the draft because I left the United States very young. I didn't have to register when I left, and I was roaming around the Liverpool, and I I met a man, a, a seaman from Somalia, and he. He uh, gave me hope, I suppose, at that time, and he took me to the hostel as, as, that was run by a mosque. Stayed there for a couple of months in the in the hostel. That sense of spirituality uh, was unbelievable. You know, there was this brotherhood. The feeling of brotherhood was really incredible, real incredible feeling. And I got myself together and wrote my mother and found out that they were looking for me, and I. The draft, and so I decided to return to the United States. Well, as I can call that's that's my first religious experience. Steve, when did you leave, and why did you leave the United States? Originally, yeah, I had to go to school. 
McGill came in uh, Canada, yeah, yes. Montreal. Then I flaked out whatever my directions. I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be a playwright, so I uh, tried to get into Trinity College Dublin, and I was there for a little bit, and there was a problem there in Trinity College, and they wanted me to pass more exams. It was a very trying period of my life. I just gave up. I just gave up, and I left. Ireland at that time, and I went to Liverpool, England. So what happened when you returned back to the United States? So I came back to the United States, which was a very interesting uh, trip back, by the way. On a ship, returning, it was 1957. Some individuals, this mixed group of people, that were coming back from the funeral. It's hard to even describe to you what happened, what the significance of, the, of that trip back was to me. But I later found out that they were Baha'is. Uh, how I found out is that I recognized one of the women that were on the boat. And I know, I knew, I remember, I, I'd seen it before. And I started reading about stuff. The guardian of the faith, Shoghi Effendi, had passed on. Baha'is from all over the world went to the funeral there was a problem in London, and so they had to leave from Liverpool, and they got the same ship I was on when I returned. So you see, I came back highly spiritualized, I know that, mm-hmm. looking for a religious experience. I am 20 years old, you know, and I'm being dragged into the Army because my mother wants me to go in there, and I don't want to get into any more troubles. But still, in my mind, I was looking for some other kind of religious experience, same kind of experience I had received when, when I was in Liverpool. You see, it's very hard to understand if you are from a Western background, the feeling of religious beauty that one can experience in Islam. I was looking for that same kind of feeling. and. All through the Army, all through when I was in the Army, which was I, I got into a program, a six-month active duty program at the time. They had those kind of things happening. I can go six months and then do the basic, go to six more months or something like that, and, and then join the reserves. And uh, that's what I did. I investigated the, the black Muslims first. I just didn't have the feeling of brotherhood. And then I, I looked at many of the other religions I had been involved in, and previously, as well as Mormonism, which at that time, you know, Mormonism was still had a racial problem. But at that time, it was it was very obvious that I could never be a, a priest or something like that because I was African American. The South Congregational Church that I had become a part of when I was young that had changed differently. It was a different type of church. It wasn't a church of of real social action. I was in the Baptist church. So that feeling was not there in, in, in that congregational church. I went to the Baptist church, and it was interesting. It was political, but highly radical, high, highly political. The inner feeling that I that I needed at that time, I didn't have. Accidentally, uh, I met this woman who eventually became my wife. We were very serious about living together for the rest of our lives, but this woman happened to be white, 
uh, was had a lot of concerns about that. And then it was my mother who told us about this article in Ebony Magazine about the Baha'i Faith, that what that was about. And then she said that my, my sister had become Baha'i. Here's this religion that would welcome an interracial couple in their community. That really kind of intrigued me. However, I some of the things about the faith, the Baha'i faith, I did not understand at that time. And so I dragged on a bit. In fact, I'm trying to disprove some of the... I, I think what it is, is here's this reality that you're living your life and you're going through all of this this experience, all the social experiences and spiritual experiences, experiences, and all along there was this this movement out there where you knew you belonged. And somehow, in the back of your mind, you knew it. And the reason why I say that is because my father's lawyer was a guy named Matthew Bullock, who became a Knight of Baha'u'llah. was a very high station in the Baha'i faith. So what is that, Steve? What is the Knight of Baha'u'llah? It's those individuals who, at a particular time when the faith is growing, that the individuals in the 50s, 1950s, they gave up their lives, whatever it was, to go out and teach and talk about the Baha'i faith and grow the Baha'i faith, as you can call it, grow the Baha'i faith in various areas around the world. Many, many of them had professions and were very successful in their lives. And the idea of of recognizing the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith and doing the ultimate service in teaching and telling people about the uh, prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. And I didn't even know that a guy named Matthew Bullock. And I, I mean, but there's so many other little things that in my life, I looked back on and I said, wow, I didn't realize that person was a Baha'i, and this was a Baha'i. This is... See, so there, there seemed to be a direction that I was going through all my life. That direction was toward the Baha'i faith, even in selecting the woman that I married and loved, Nancy. She understood the Baha'i faith immediately, what it was all about. It was just very rare, I mean, very rare. So Nancy became a Baha'i first? No, she did not. <laughs> because she knew if she had become a Baha'i first and I wasn't a Baha'i, maybe I would have not declared myself as a Baha'i. And why is that? Well, because of the fact that I wanted to be the discoverer in our relationship. That was the person that went out there and saw it first. And also the mere fact that there were several important questions that had not been answered that I had about the Baha'i faith. At that time, I probably would have said, why did you do that? Why didn't you ask me? I'm being very honest. I probably would have been very hurt that she went and did something without consulting me about it. But she knew it only until afterwards she told me that mm. she would have declared much earlier if I had been settled, mm. if I knew exactly that I wanted to become a Baha'i. Well, I've been a Baha'i for over 35 years, my friend. And it's kind of universal questions. 
the forerunner of the Baha'i faith, the Bab, I can call him, in himself a manifestation or a prophet, we hear that he had an Ethiopian servant. And when individuals came to the Bab to find out or to discover the coming of the spiritual era and recognizing who the Bab is, because the Bab is the one who announced the coming of Baha'u'llah, those individuals were revered highly in the faith. But at the same time, the Bab had an Ethiopian servant who knew who he was. Because it was the Ethiopian servant who first invited the seekers into the presence of the Bab. If you're not a Baha'i, you know, it's kind of hard to understand all this stuff. But what it is, it's like, what level, and I'm thinking about this now, what level in what message does that give to people like myself, dark-skinned Ethiopian African-Americans? We are basically relegated as servants. And I suppose, you know, white men are the ones who go out and teach the faith, teach about Baha'u'llah, or teach about the coming of the spiritual new world and through era. What does that mean? When I think about it, I always wonder myself, how come I became a Baha'i when I thought that there was this uh, almost a contradiction in this religion when it, when it came to race. How is it that that didn't stop you from becoming a Baha'i? That's the mystical part of it. Because I knew I was. Because of the many contradictions in life, I eventually understood, I received that, that tremendous feeling that I had when I was in England. I'll tell you, it's amazing, this musk, this, this perfume in the writings and also the message, the spirit, the knowledge of it, and the unknown knowledge of it. Listen, I don't even know who God is. It's an unknown thing. Unknown, who knows? And I believe in God. Also, I knew one day I would, for myself, answer those questions. I knew that would happen if I had a pure mind and I thought, the right way, and I try to live my life in a certain way, then, then those questions would be revealed to me. And they were. What's the answer that you came to regarding the Ethiopian servant? So this is what was revealed to me. I can tell you how it came about it. It was through reading the Bible. I was reading the Hebrew Bible, and I, for some reason I was making a comparison between some of the Old Testament stories and language and translations saw the word servant, what the idea of servant was, the idea of the servant, the idea of someone in service, the idea that the son of Baha'u'llah called himself a servant. He took the title himself. He wasn't given that name. He took the name of slave. So therefore, slave-servant is the same thing, Really? It all depends on the perspective of it, right? So in the Bible, it talks about Noah and Ham and, and how Ham saw Noah drunk in the vineyard. This is after the whole ark thing. 
and so we saw in Noah, and Noah tells him that he and his, all his sons will be servants of his brothers, will be slaves of the brothers forever and ever. And that, of course, in certain Christian churches, the reason that justifies the slavery for black folk. But when you read it, servant means really service of his brothers, because he saw the truth as to who Noah was. It's how you read the passage. I had to read it twice in different versions to understand what it was getting at. And the getting at was about, there's a task, everybody has a task in life. One task in life is to serve. And with that task of service, there is consolidation and hospitality, and, and which is extremely important. It's what makes things happen. The other part of it is teaching, going out and spreading the word. So you have this expansion element where people are going out into this world and making these announcements of, look at your life has changed, etc., right? Mm -hmm. But also, on the other hand, that there's this home, this hospitality, so the Bob, the forerunner of Baha'u'llah, in his household, his wife and his servants knew who he was, but that wasn't the issue. The issue was that you had to maintain the household. The household is the purpose of it, is the kingdom, is the place where you are. There's equality there. There's an, a balancing of expansion and consolidation. That's what that's all about. It doesn't necessarily mean we're saying that all black folk are out there, and all we do is hang out and, and, and we don't go and teach. Of course we go. Many, many great teachers are out there that are African-American. They've gone out and, and told everybody about this wonderful news about Baha'u'llah and, and individuals like Louis Gregory in our faith. Many other people have lost a lot of things, time, sacrifice, stuff, real martyrs. But on the other hand, when you look at the symbology of that event when humanity came looking for change, looking for a new dawn, a new spirituality, that dawn and spirituality was maintained by the Bobsitz wife and the Ethiopian servant. That's my answer to that question. If you believe in Jung and all these other people, you know, and a lot of philosophers, and you see that, if you want to look at the symbology of African Americans or black people or whatever, and you look at us, symbology is, is that we, as a race, have been basically the people who have kept the thing going spiritually, like the mammies, kept the household together, kept the family together, and actually kept the spirituality of America together. There's no question about the African-American role in America was basically one of maintaining America's spirituality. Yeah. From music, jazz, whatever, right? The music, the gospel, the, the gospel music, to, to the great literature, 
So that was the, the answer to that one. Now, that was a long answer. That was a good answer. <laughs> now, Steve, what happened after you became a Baha'i? After I became a Baha'i, I became really interested in my brother man to the chagrin of, of some of my kids and things like that. Because, you know, I, I, was, an, I, was, I was a writer and became a writer and I was in television and all that. I dedicated myself to bringing some sort of understanding or knowledge of self for the African-American and others about who we are and why we are here. Didn't make any money out of it, or if I made money out of it, I, you know, I wouldn't, that would not be the reality of it. The, the business is highly competitive, and I never wavered in my quest to educate. I never wavered. That's what I did, primarily. Well, for instance, I, I did the series of a black sitcom way back. It was like before Sanford and Son, back to one of the people that worked on the show, I did a, uh, was uh, was a director of the Sanford, of the Sanford and Son. It was called Brother Love. They had it done in a couple of markets. I was asked to try to syndicate it, and replace the actors with other people, and you know, lose control of it, and, and whether the intention of it was. What I, I had different social issues on the show each week. I didn't do it. I refused to do it. So therefore, the show died because I couldn't get the kind of money together to make it happen. Basically, a lot of stuff that I was doing, uh, I did a thing. I created a concept called Black News that was about a training ground for black news reporters during the time period when I was doing this late 60s, early 70s. There was no real way of, of black folk to get into the business except through, like, almost like an affirmative action thing. And that was because of the fact that all these reporters, they've gone through this basic training, this, this little league, uh, white reporters go through this little league thing of small little towns in the Midwest and whatever, and they train and they get up and they grow up through the markets. And if you're black, you can't do it, because during those days, they wouldn't hire you in... Uh, Okanoki, Michigan, on the on the little uh, two camera station. If you're black, so uh, there was no way of getting into the station. So we we got this thing go this black news shows, different places where they trained in this weekly news show, and then you work with the uh, camera people from the news station, and you work and you do some stories, and then you kind of integrate yourself into the newsroom that way. Most of the stories in the show were basically on that level of the, of the small-town news operations is how we operated. Single camera running out there, uh, interviewing black PTA members and stuff like that. So it was freelance reporting to provide to the Yeah, right. But, to uh, the yeah, news, meet, news yeah, outlets? We, we, yeah, we owned it. I was given a Muslim name years ago. It was Hussein, you know, Steve Hussein Associate. You know, it wasn't just doing that type of stuff. We 
also were little stories like when and Angela Davis came came back from from South America. Uh, they asked us to interview her. When we interviewed her, then the interview was used all over the country, the major major stations. Sometimes we were lucky that way, but the majority of the whole in- intention was a training ground. And you were in radio too. Well, actually, we was one of the writers in the show called In Harvard Square. That was a soap opera. And that was with the NPR. We, we did that for a year. This still ran as a daily, daily show. It was like an incredible work that was being, a, lot, a lot of work. Later on, we had a show. Uh, we, we did a talk show. A friend of mine, we just radio free radio, something like that. It was an open talk show. So what are you doing now, Steve? I mean, in the meantime, I've written stuff. I've, you know, screenplays. I've done other stuff, plays. I have two books, actually three books, that I'm writing simultaneously. I, I decided to go into the print media. I am doing the thing called believe it or not, laughter yoga, which is a continuation of some things I did years ago when I did stand-up comedy. I used to do stand-up comedy. I kind of realized that the reason why people grow old is that they don't really really know how to laugh. Oh, there's laughter there, but they don't really know how to laugh. The fact, laughing is about breathing, really. Some people get heart attack laughing because they, they, but laughing is about breathing, and I kind of found that out. So I'm doing uh, workshops on that. I'm certified to do that, and I'm doing workshops on that now. Mm. But I'm really into a desire to investigate more my faith, and I'm 72 years old, my friend. You know so. What can I say? <laughs> you know, I, I, I wish I could go back to work. I don't really envy anyone nowadays who, you know, have to have to be involved with the the negativity of the workplace that's in the workplace at this particular time. Sense of no hope mm-hmm. when you know and when you see. And you are aware of there is tremendous amount of hope out there mm. if you look in the right places. You said you had a website, slhemingway.com? Yeah. Okay, and did you say it's one or two M's in Hemingway? One M. The, the yoga thing is Spirit of Laughter, www.spiritoflaughter.com. And I do do music, right? I do do the piano thing, right? And I do have a website for that, for music, my music. And that is slhemingway.homestead.com. It's horrible to have a last name like Hemingway, because when you go on the Internet and you look at websites, there's other Hemingway shop, and you can think of all the different ways that a Hemingway can, can be combined, mm-hmm. right? 
this other Hemingway, you know, the less famous one, <laughs> gets on there. I, I, it's plus, even though you pay this money, to, you, you know, to have some sort of priority space or something like that, yeah. it's, it's incredible. Huh. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable. You mean, that, you mean that earnest guy? Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the guy who's earnest about things, you know? <laughs> yeah, where the hell did he come from? <laughs> I, I know. Really how, come he's ta- how, how come he's taking up all your web space? <laughs> <laughs> I am, however, I am now doing some other Twitter. I think that's tremendous. Yeah, it's getting quite popular now. And I think the reason why it's popular, because it's not like a blog where you got to scroll down. I mean, that's the trouble with blogs, man. The computer screen really is not meant to read blogs. I mean, you know, you scroll down and you, something else comes in your life, and you haven't completed that that scroll and your cursor and you've got to go through that. There's tremendous stuff out there, but blogs really are boring. Even if the content could be extremely exciting, what I like is action, mm. conversation, like in the Twitter. You know, like three or four lines, someone else throws something else. Like That's what it's supposed to be on the Internet, I believe. That's why I like Twitter. Well, Steve, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Steve Hemingway, a Baha'i from the Boston metropolitan area. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Isaiah goes on to say they shall see the light. Then they shall see the light. Laying down with the light. And all the nations. And all the nations. 
south, the east, and the west. They'll be gathered around the throne. Oh, they'll see them marching. All together up the mountain. On the king's highway.
They stood up on the mountain top and shouted out with tears in his eyes.
and bless the Lord at all times. In the presence of His holiness, spirits are filled. When the praises go up, the blessings will come down. So with our praises, we will dance and sing and let you know our God is real. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.